<laughs> I said I love how you say uh, thanks for tuning in. You're such an old woman. Yes. That's like a radio a radio term to like turn the dot tune the dial. Oh, you're in. right. Well, I just talked about linguistics for almost an hour, so I think I am an old lady. <laughs> I was like, what will I talk about this week? And then I couldn't sleep one night because I'm like, this is what it will be. You want to talk about linguistics? Welcome to episode eight of the Salsa Soul Food Podcast. We are so happy. Thank you for everyone who's been tuning in. (laughs) Oh, God. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is really nice to see our numbers grow. Mm -hmm. We've got got a a sturdy base of people listening to us. Yeah, I'm really thankful and... Just thanks to all my friends because you're mainly the ones listening. Because <laughs> it's really important that people actually message me and and will describe things in detail. And I'm like, how did you actually like listen to that? And it's been great. And over eleven, or I shouldn't say over eleven. Don't push it, Angela. Eleven countries have tuned in, have listened. And that's why I say like this. They might be your friends, but I don't have friends in other countries, so. I don't. No, know. like I don't know anybody in Poland. So shout out to the Poland. Yo. Ireland. The, the, how many was it like one or two people in Poland? I don't let's not tell them the percentage. They don't need to know. <laughs> well, let's say, hey, that one person in Poland, because if they listen again, they want to they want to feel they want to feel special. I will live and die for you. One person in Poland. You're my everything. <laughs> I love you. I think it's like Poland, New Zealand, Ireland is like a, a few countries that it's like at least one person. United Arab Emirates. Um and I don't know off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll post it to the Grammy, the Grammy poo. Okay. Um, we got a good, we got a great episode for you. You think? I think so. It, it made me think about the time that um, you and I haven't really gone to see many movies together. Oh, but, but, we, <laughs> but we did go see Arrival, the sci-fi, oh the yes, sci-fi movie. And I You're think right. it really has something to do with this episode. <gasps> You're a genius. You're right because she's like a linguist. Yeah. So the whole, I mean, not to not to spoil the movie, but like these, the, an alien ship comes down, and the whole movie is about how you communicate with some with a, another species mm-hmm. that you just you have no base for. Like, there's not even like this is this is water. Like, there's nothing. So how do you communicate with someone like that? Mm-hmm. And you, you had, you, I don't know. Do you, do you remember much about that movie? Because I remember you had like a really good take on it. Yeah, I remember that you and I. Everyone fights me to this day. I really think that I just had the wrong perspective on the movie. Because <laughs> my mom was like, "That's not right, Angela. Like that's the wrong thing." You don't gotta, like, you don't gotta worry about the ending. Don't worry about that. <laughs> no, but like, yeah. So, anyways, you, you can talk about it because I don't remember how I thought about it. No, I mean, I just if if you're interested in more about like um, fiction, because you you talk about the book that you were uh, reading um, mm-hmm. for this episode. But if you're looking for something that's like that general idea, but with like fiction and, and sci-fi in general, I think this is a really cool movie well, that talks about language in that I way. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, because I I was thinking that things had happened like in a re reverse order than what I think was meant for people to think it happened in. Just mm -hmm. watch the movie, guys. Just watch. It's, it's a good movie. Yeah, sorry. I'm trying to like break it down now. And before we get into the episode, is there any other... Last last week you recommended um, some, some Netflix... Uh, some Netflix movies. Is there anything that you uh you got on the table that you, you've been digging? So I've been into the drug lords, which is not a good thing, but anything like crime, drug related, I jumped from the Hasidic Judaism all the way to drug lords, but that's what Netflix does to you. <laughs> so um I really got into how to fix a drug scandal, which takes place in Massachusetts. If you have not watched it, you need to. You need to. I also love things about like just bringing justice to the world. And this is all about just like, it's, it's two chemists who basically were tampering with um, like evidence of all of these criminals who then were put in prison, thousands of people. And it's talking about just how to fix all the issues that went wrong. So that's you so it. weird that you bring that up. I watched um, Icarus last night. Have you heard What's of that, that one? No. Icarus is all about the Russian doping scandal in the Olympics. <gasps> I would love that. And just like the cover up and how they um, uh, uh, were negative on the test when all these athletes were clearly doping. It's really cool. It's called Icarus. Um, Is it a doc docu-series? Yeah, it's, it's one movie. It's uh -oh. documentary. Uh-oh. Yeah. I think I'm going to watch that right after we get off of this it's call. It's really interesting. So it's, it starts in one direction and like it completely goes in a different one. Like the first Ooh. little part part of the movie is this guy, he just wants to see like how he can get away with cheating a, a drug test. So he's he's constantly doping and he's like he's he's just trying to pass a drug test um with with some help and then something happens and shit gets wild. <laughs> so That's I recommend movie. Icarus. It's cool. You'll love it. You'll love this episode. Yeah. Right, so today we're going to cover one of my favorite topics. So I know that you all might have heard of sort of the mind-body connection, right? So I recently read this book and it really got me thinking about mind, body, and language, right? Um, not just like language like English, French, Spanish, but like the way that we talk about our health and how that in turn um, affects our health and how we look at ourselves or as our like as a society as a whole. Uh, so I recently read a book called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes by a linguist named Daniel Everett. I actually posted it to my Instagram stories. I had got it a long time ago when I was in college. I was taking a linguistics course and I just fell in love with it, but actually never finished it because I'm awful at finishing books. Uh, and he was actually sent to the Amazonian jungle uh, to study a language of um, a tribe called the Piraha. And his original mission was to translate the Bible into their language, which is also called Piraha, and then convert them, right, to Christianity. But the opposite happened, and he actually ended up converting and became an atheist. So it's a really, really interesting book. So anybody out there who's interested in, like, philosophy, language, like, it's really, really cool. Uh, and it started to get me thinking again about health, culture, and language, because these are really my favorite, favorite topics. And I thought it would also be fitting, because now that we're going – 
through this pandemic, we've also noticed how our language has changed already. Like there's words that we now use on a daily basic, daily basis that before, like nobody before was like asymptomatic, um, immunosuppressed. Nobody was like spewing these terms, like the average person, let's say, right? Yeah. And so I think it's like an interesting time to kind of talk about those things and not it's not saying it's a good or a bad thing it's just showing that language really affects how we think about our health right and I what mean, we put I mean, in like social a distancing is like a new yeah oh phrase, that's such, right why didn't i think of that i didn't even write that in my notes what's wrong with me <laughs> you're right or lockdown yeah maybe there was lockdown before like if like mm. i mean no, wasn't there lockdown when the Boston bomber was? Um... I guess no, you're right. But in lockdown, that that's more in the sense of like, there's danger. Okay. But no, but I get what you're saying because I feel like then it had the connotation of like danger. But now it's almost like, it's weird because you almost feel like fear, fearful, right? But mm -hmm. it's really like which that's a whole conversation about how the virus like instills fear in all of us as well. And the language of like lockdown makes you think of, shit, I shouldn't leave the house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's social distancing. Why didn't I think of that? That's so true. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to start off by like reading a little bit of, there's like excerpts towards the end of the book that I felt really connected to the podcast. So I'm going to read this by Daniel Everett. So he said, the PETA has shown no evidence of depression, chronic fatigue, extreme anxiety, panic attacks, or other, other psychological ailments common in many industrialized societies. I have never heard a Pitahas say that he or she is worried. In fact, so far as I can tell, the Pitahas have no word for worry in their language. True, the Pitahas don't have to worry about paying their bills on time or which college to select for their children, but they do have life-threatening physical ailments. They regularly face dangerous reptiles and other creatures. They live with threats of violence from outsiders. When I am there, Daniel Everett, with a much easier life than the Pitahas themselves have, I still find that there is plenty for me to get worked up about. The thing is, I do get worked up, but they don't. So I thought this part is very interesting. In the book, he, he, he doesn't proclaim that he is, you know, a health expert or anything. He mainly is talking about the language, but at the end, he sort of discusses these observations that overall, he hasn't noticed any severe cases of sort of these men common mental health issues that we describe in our society. And like he said, they do face threats and things that would set you off or put you on edge, but he just notices that they really didn't, um, it didn't seem to bother them as much. And he lived there for over like 30 years. So this wasn't just like a little vacation. He really dedicated his life to, to their culture and their language. And so it raises this question of if a specific uh, word, like for a specific feeling or emotion or a way of acting doesn't exist or, you know, or like an illness doesn't exist in your language, then why is that, right? It doesn't mean that because the word for malaria doesn't exist in the Piraha language, then malaria doesn't exist because of course they suffered from it. It just means that the way that they view it and their level of, of knowledge around it is different, right? Um, and so... In some cases, too, I think that there's less importance placed on certain concepts if they don't exist in the language, just like Mark said with social distancing, right? There was less, there was no reason for us to even talk about that before. There was no importance as a culture, as a society, but now because we want to save lives because life is precious to us, right? So now it's like, okay, we have a new term to sort of help 
like navigate that right that makes me think like did they have <laughs> like maybe not maybe not in this book but just in general like did mm-hmm. <laughs> did people have allergies because like mm-hmm. can you, every spring i just i just become a complete mess and i'm like i am like darwinism should take me out just get get rid of me i can't breathe in nature every spring yeah. what <laughs> like how did that that's happen that's really true yeah i think that's like interesting because that's like another thing like allergies too with food especially that that's seen more in industrialized societies than I don't really know about this specific tribe and like their allergies or not, but like that wasn't one of the things that I think they commonly dealt with. And so it's true. It's like, well, what about our environment is making it so that we are not like adjusting properly. Cause I get you. It's like allergies are one of those things. Like how am I not used to these plants by now? Or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah. So like maybe less importance are placed on certain things. And of course, I don't have the answer to this. I'm not claiming to be a linguist. It is just opening up the conversation about how our language can relate to our overall health. And so it also got me thinking the Piraha tribe and thinking about our society or just industrialized societies in general of the two parts of the nervous systems that we have. So hang on with me. This isn't hurting, but it's really going to be good. So there is something called the fight or flight mode. And then there's the rest or digest mode. And in science, if you're going to get into the more scientific terms for fight or flight, it's called sympathetic. And that is when your body is concerned with preparing itself to react to situations of stress or emergency. So imagine like you are being chased down. Um, your, your life is basically being threatened. That's when your body enters the sympathetic mode. Okay. And then the rest or digest is parasympathetic, which is when the body conserves energy as it slows the heart rate, increases intestinal and gland activity and relaxes sphincter muscles, which I love to say, um, and gastrointestinal tract. Right. So think of a little baby who like just took like a beautiful dump, who <laughs> had like a perfect bowel movement. That's rest and digest. They're parasympathetic. Not to say that babies can't be in life-threatening situations. Obviously they can be, but it's like, you know, just that kind of example of like the baby ate and then it went to the bathroom because they don't really have all this other stuff like necessarily like in their mind to create such stress. Um, so those are the two. And so this sort of, so again, sympathetic is just more of like that stressful state. Parasympathetic is a relaxed state. And so many of us who live in these industrialized societies, you can probably relate to being in a stress state constantly. Like parasympathetic is like, boom, I'm turned on. And you're like, why am I constantly stressed? Because you're like, I'm not necessarily in a stressful moment. And that's because, and there are articles written on this and I'm just sort of like paraphrasing and summarizing what I've read because of constant stimulation we get from technology, hormones on our food or in our food, chemicals in the, in products or the environment, even like Mark talking about allergies, poor sleep and overconsumption of alcohol and sugar creates this sense that our nervous system is like constantly overwhelmed, right? And so when I thought about the Piraha versus us, and I don't know this for a fact, but the way that Daniel Everett described it is seeming like the Piraha, although they also have very severely like threatening situations that might even be more threatening than what we're dealing with, it seems like their parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system is more in balance. So they see a panther that's coming after them and they're, they're sympathetic. Their fight or flight is going to turn on 
and they're going to react because that's a true like situation of stress um, versus for us it seems like we don't really have that true like trigger of stress anymore so we, our body just gets overwhelmed by all of the the stimulants and everything that's around us that it's kind of like out of whack and that sort of biological fight or flight mode that we used to have maybe back in the day is now like kind of confused if that makes sense to all of you and so that's why like now mainstream is like yoga deep breathing all of these things because we actually need to fight to get into parasympathetic um mode uh and rest or digest and that's why if you watch tv there's so many medications for constipation people can't go to the bathroom because they literally are in sympathetic mode all of the time so you're telling me <laughs> no no we'll be honest i had to just pause i had to pause this because angela's phone was going off so if you heard vibrations oh, that was her but we're back at it now i'm not a good example don't worry she's she's only eight eight episodes into a podcast and she's learning <laughs> I'm, so sorry. I'm sweating <laughs> uh keep going this is, this is great i'm loving listening to this okay no so your question though ask your question again Oh, no, I just wanted to stop you so um, I could tell you to take the phone off. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just need to get words uh, in. Okay, no, fine. <laughs> okay, so that's basically a breakdown of parasympathetic and sympathetic. Parasympathetic and sympathetic. Sorry if I've been mispronouncing that this whole time. And so another thing that the, uh, the linguist Daniel Everett discussed, the author in the book, is that this tribe also really, their language focuses on their their immediate experience. So they don't actually have like um, stories that they pass down generation to generation because they don't really have stories that describe the past. It's not, it's not that they don't have a past tense, they just don't describe past events. And so that was something that was groundbreaking in the world of linguistics because nobody had ever seen a culture that didn't really describe past events. Uh, and again, I'm not a linguist, so you'll have to go in depth to get more information on that but, but basically you a, but you did a lot of language studies like you keep downplaying yeah, like, i guess that's true yeah yeah i, I do like love language as well yeah. um but like people who are tr true linguists like they would like burn burn me for like saying certain things so it's just like you know come at me linguists <laughs> <laughs> come at me <laughs> um and so they really discuss their immediate experience, right? And so what we, what we consider immediate experience in our sort of um, society is mindfulness, right? So again, you could say that their language really represented mindfulness, whereas in our culture, we're always thinking about goals and what's for the future, which of course is, you know, it's part of who I am and I love it, but it also can create uh, a lot of stress for us and we honestly things change all the time and we don't necessarily know if what we plan is going to work out similar to being like hooked up or not hooked up but addicted to like past events and like things that you could have changed i feel like that's also something that we all sort of struggle with so i found that to be also interesting about the immediate experience and how their actual language and sort of grammar reflects their mindfulness and so this also brought me to talk a little bit more about my experience as a teacher in Moldova. I recently have been a little bit nostalgic for that whole experience. It was positive and negative, but I kind of 
thought it would be relevant to talk about it now since I am describing, you know, this, this tribe, but living in a village in Moldova, I actually had sort of evidence of what I had observed and experienced. And again, I want to say I was in a village. So everything I'm discussing is more about my specific village life. It, it is no reflection of like Moldovans as a whole or people who grew up in the city or are professionals in the city, whatever the case may be. So to give you like a bit of a setting, uh, I was a health education teacher. The village was about 3,000 people. And every family, most families, I should say, had their own animals. We had cows, chickens, um, turkeys, and I forget the rest. Uh, and a, a garden, a huge garden. And most every family grew grapes because wine was a big, big part of their culture. And so we would often have fresh dairy, organic produce. And we, although we wouldn't have a great variety of produce, we would have minim, minimally processed food. And so although there were still like crappy foods available with like chemicals and all this other crap, it was nothing like what we have in the United States. So just to give you a background that I was going in to teach health in a place that majority of these kids were probably a lot healthier in certain aspects than many young American children, right? Because our cons consumption of sugar is just kind of like out of control. Sure, like you didn't run across an obese child, right? Well, that's interesting. Uh, we, we got to hear from some people from like the Ministry of Health in Moldova, and they said that obesity was on the rise. But in my village, I would say like, I, I noticed more like obese um, older women. I didn't notice like children as much. And overall, the children were, they were pretty like fit. Like even my brother visited and he was saying, overall, I feel like people are very like fit. And that's because they do a lot of physical labor. It's a lot of labor with like moving the animals. Oh, that farmer strength that everyone's looking for. Yeah, definitely chopping mm -hmm. wood. That's like what my dad is. My dad doesn't look fit, but he's got that farmer strength. Because he he's does. Just constantly moving all day long. What? How do you know this? <laughs> you go, <laughs> he does. <laughs> Never seen him move a barrel of hay, though. <laughs> I know I haven't, but like I, I could see that is what I mean to say. He's just like a very like, I feel like he's a hands-on kind he's of guy. He's very strong. He's got like. He's got like this hidden strength inside of him. I always said that about him. He's very Moldovian. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and so, yeah, so to your point, it wasn't like a huge issue, but I could definitely see it becoming that way, like in the future, because kids like wouldn't really eat breakfast. They would eat like a lot of chocolate for breakfast or like, you know, just like things that kids in the U.S. deal with, too. Mm -hmm. But overall, like the look of it, parts of it seem healthier at first. Uh, and so um, sometimes as a teacher, I kind of felt that certain things I was teaching were not relevant for my students just because we come from two completely different worlds. And so I, I shouldn't say that all the time, but whenever I did teach something, I would make sure to be open enough to say, I'm giving you information and now it's your decision to evaluate my information and make a decision for yourself, which is a lot to do with kids because they, they, they can't really always do that. Um, so one time we taught um mental health and technology that was a topic of the class and so my partner teacher because i would teach with another uh, moldovan tatiana in this case and we taught uh, about like we listed various things like various reasons why men um, technology might not be the best for your health overall health and mental health and we talked about how the light on the computer uh, can like keep you up at night distract you it can be bad for your eyes how overall using technology can sometimes um not help us 
uh, improve our memory because we're constantly using technology and not really trusting like books or doing doing things how we used to before. And we also discussed the positive effects of technology, obviously about discovering new information, being connected to other people. And then we came upon two definitions because we would, we would present definitions almost every class with a health message. And the two definitions were anxiety and depression. And this was the first time that I realized that my kids were like, hmm, I have no idea what this is. When we talked about the immune system or maybe like heart disease or even like emotions, they knew Mark's cat. <laughs> Mark's cat is in our podcast right now. Oh my God, I'm loving it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. We need to break, break this up. Yeah. What's your cat's name again? It's Behemoth. Oh, Behemoth. I always forget. Behemoth scratched me in the butt once. Yeah, he likes to do that. He also really likes attention when it's hot. So like earlier today when I was sweating my balls off, he just was like rubbing his hairy body on my leg and I was just like, Ugh. Oh my God. He's trying to steal my spotlight. I know. <laughs> oh my God. What a hoe. <laughs> what a hoe. So, okay, so these two words were anxiety and depression, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the kids had, they kind of understood that depression was sort of related to sort of sad emotions. So that they had kind of heard, and I had heard Moldovans previously, again, in my village, using the word, the term depression. But anxiety, they were like, damn, I don't know what that means. And so <laughs> it was just very tough. And not to go back to this linguist, Daniel Everett, which he really brings up a good point. For example, talking about, he talked about how the PETA had, actually never borrowed words from other languages. So in English, right, we have bon appetit. That's French. That's something we have borrowed from other languages, right? The influence of French culture, cuisine. I'm not really sure of the origins, but that's an example of borrowed words. <clears throat> the Piraha did not have that. And Moldovans, they often had many borrowed words from English and, in fact, other languages as well. And so the word for depression and anxiety in Moldovan, or in Romanian, I'm sorry, is anxietatia and depresie, which literally is the same, it's taken from English, right? Mm. So it starts to make you think, you know, not, not of course that I, I, I witnessed and saw Moldov these Moldovans in the village being very stressed and dealing with a lot of anxiety and stressful, stressful um, tasks and a lot of things that they had to get done. But it seemed that these words had just like been barred from the English language um, because they didn't necessarily use them. And I think that they didn't use them not because they didn't have those experiences of depression or anxiety, but because their focus is to move forward. Their focus is not necessarily let's talk about these things and let's solve this. It's more of like, I need to get this done in order for me to then be able to move forward, right? I need to milk the cow. I need to pick all of my grapes so that they don't rot and then I lose money. So there's like all of these things. And again, it's not to say that nobody in a village in Moldova ever uses therapy or, or doesn't seek out mental health resources. It's just that it's more about what is necessary. You know, it's like the hierarchy of, of needs. What is more important in this moment? And so I thought that that was really interesting. And, and my kids fully, my students fully understood them once things were broken down. I just found it to be, to be interesting. And there also is another phrase in Romanian called am um, which if you translate it, it means I have emotions or I am nervous. And I had, that was a common, common phrase. So again, kids before a test or a performance, 
or even if I was nervous about something, my, my host would be like, oh, like you have emotions, like you have, you're nervous. And so that was interesting because that was kind of their term for sort of the closest thing I could say that resembled anxiety. At least in the Would you also stuff. kind of like say that this is emotion, but but a test isn't coming up? Um, you know, I I kind of think of anxiety. Like I don't I don't think I have anxiety because I I would know if I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I like to think about it, from what people describe, I feel like it's like that feeling that you get when you wake up and you know you missed your alarm, mm-hmm. but like always and for no reason. You know? Yeah, that's a good that's a good description of it of anxiety actually because yeah my brain no um no I get that you that's really a good point too is that being nervous is different from being anxious so that is a good point so I'm not and I'm not trying to say that but I guess what I'm trying to say it was like the closest term that they would use often that seemed like it could like mean anxiety like my host mother for example like her son he always had to drove to to drive to Germany that was his job to like um transfer people from Moldova to Germany. And she would always say like, I'm mostly like, I'm really nervous about him. And in that case, I'm like, oh, she's anxious. Cause like it was about her son. So I guess what you bring a good point is it, it was more based on the context, whether I could in my like American English brain was like, oh, that's anxiety or, oh, they're just like nervous. Does that make sense? Totally. And of course I could have also been completely wrong cause I'm not in their brains ultimately. Um, and another interesting thing that was, um, that I discovered is I would, the person I was closest with was my host mother. So obviously most of my experiences are based off of her and she would often describe mental health in the village. She had told me about somebody who had unfortunately committed suicide and, um, and she, when she would describe her friends or acquaintances, cause everyone in the village knows each other. So really everyone is somehow related she would always describe them as sick in the head if they had mental health issues, which is called in Romanian, which literally means like sick in the head. And to an American, if you translate that to English, it doesn't necessarily, like first you might think like, oh, that person is being rude or is kind of making fun of mental health. But for her, that was what her language told her, like that's what it means. They're dealing with mental health issues. And... Um, so that was interesting because for her, like where, how she grew up, and I'm sure this is even the same for a lot of older Americans, especially like my family, there are a lot of these new terms that, you know, we talk about obsessive compulsive disorder and all these other names for mental health issues that didn't exist before. Not that the, not that the issue didn't exist, but the names didn't. And so I think that that was proof for her that she was just expressing it how how she knew. And I I thought that was interesting. And of course, again, that's not to say that there are many Moldovan psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, and professionals who obviously have been using um, these terms. But in the village, I love to see how they use their language to communicate um, what was going on as far as like with health and mental health. And another thing that I just wanted to bring up too, we would, every summer we would do, or the two summers I was there, we had to do, uh, uh, create a health, why can I not think of it, lesson plans or a curriculum for the whole year for health classes. And my other partner, my older partner, um, Veronica, Moldovan teacher partner, 
uh, I asked her, okay, so uh, I would love to do a mental health topic on, you know, and just, and discuss suicide and depression. And her reaction was, no, we shouldn't talk about that because then like kids will want to know more about it and they'll be curious kind of saying that then it will happen. So in the, in the moment I was like, mm. and it was, this was when I was newer to the country. So I was like, I'm really not feeling her vibe on this because I think we should talk about it. And now as I've reflected on it again, if you're looking back on kind of what I said earlier in her mind, she's like, if there's not a lot of cases, if we don't really deal with that, why bring attention to it? Why not just focus on creating positive habits and focusing on positive mental health versus discussing something that isn't as relevant in my society? Like that's how I'm thinking she was thinking about it. Um, and so now I can say, although I don't agree with her a hundred percent, I can say that I see where she's coming from. Cause I think sometimes in our society now we can exacerbate and over discuss so many things that again, it, it kind of makes us overstimulated again, back to that like stressful state. Uh, and I think it also reflects the culture a bit where in Moldovan culture, I feel there's this idea and I feel that many, there's many cultures are like this where, or many people in general, that it's not necessary to talk about everything. And that some things will resolve themselves on their own and that sometimes it's better you're more protected if you don't discuss certain things in a sense or it's better for your health right so that was like a perspective that i had to adjust with because in my family you know we're not perfect and, and we don't talk about everything but i was used to it was very clear to me that discussing things was was healthy and so i had to like understand that that was just also a different different approach uh, to to mental health, and that's kind of getting outside of like the language. But overall, it it does connect. That's really interesting. She used the she she said that we shouldn't talk about it. Like a reason for it was you know the the cases are are low, so why why bring it up? Is it is it just because people don't know how to talk about it? Like I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, uh, ha having an American lifestyle and, and eating poorly and not exercising and not getting sun, I'm sure that's like a huge part of um, like depression. So, you know, maybe if they're eating like ch chickens right off their farm, that's like something better. But there's got to be some kid who when you discuss this, you're like, oh, that that's what I'm feeling. No one has described it to me before. Yes. And that's you know? that's where I can, that's where I agree with you is that. I think overall, and of course, like statistic wise, I don't know exactly, but I'm sure suicide is just lower in general because like the num the people, there's less people there. But in Moldova, a huge issue is migration where families are being torn apart. A mother will leave to go work in Italy and her, her daughter or son will be left with who knows who and they're in the family necessarily. And so it, there's a lot of instability. So in my mind, I thought it would be necessary because people are like, it's a crisis really if your family's being broken up. And um, so in my mind, I agree with you where it, although there might be healthier aspects or things are fresher or not filled with as many hormones or chemicals, I do think that in, in the mental health area, there's a lot to still be discussed. And I think you're right that maybe there's, there isn't a way to discuss it uh, because it hasn't been. So people might laugh or or not really understand it. And 
I mean, just like we all did when we first started learning about sex education, you know? Exactly. It's like we all giggled, but we were like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm feeling, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it's really true. And when the same class where we taught the mental health and technology, there was a video we showed at the end. Anyone can find it on YouTube. It's just black and white, and it's like a cartoon. And it's this boy, like, walking around depressed. And then at the end, he jumps off a building, like, and this is less like, it's not like gory. I showed it to like fifth and sixth graders. So I was like, was that the right choice? But he jumped off a building and then everyone's recording it with his eye, with their iPhones as he like falls to his death. And a lot of the kids laughed, but a lot of them realized he's, they, they understood that the nuances of it is that no one really cares about what we're feeling. And we're so connected to technology that we forget that when someone is hurt or needs help, that we need to be aware. And so, uh, but they, the point is they laughed also because they're kids, but it's that idea of, unless you've really been, sometimes if you're not affected by that experience, then you're not sure how to react. Just like with sex, like you said, with like kids. Um, so, so yeah, that was sort of like a little bit of what I wanted to bring you today, kind of starting off with the Pitaha tribe and discussing Daniel Everett. Again, the name of his book is Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And I highly recommend it for just like anyone who wants a good story because he talks about uh, his experiences and dives into linguistics. And then kind of discussing Moldova and mental health and sort of my experience with that and, and how language is connected. And I know in the previous episode when we talked with Denise, that's why I specifically asked her that question of when she was able to put like a diagnosis to what she was feeling. Or not a diagnosis, just like a name. That's why I asked her like, did it help you or did it not help you? Because I think everyone can have a different reaction of <clears throat> does language and putting a name to it help me or does it not? And everyone has like a different experience. Some people think that that makes them focus on it more or maybe use it as a crutch while others saying like, no, this empowers me because I know that, that it exists and I'm not alone. And so I think that everyone has like different debates, but I just love to talk about it and also to help us be aware that when we're reading news articles or hearing things just about health in general, but about everything we're dealing with with the virus, just to know to educate yourself. I know that I have to be more aware and if there's a new word or a new phrase or something to understand like what that means and how that impacts you and how that impacts others. And yeah, I hope you, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. The Salsa Soul Food podcast is hosted by Angela Spignese. Follow her on Instagram at Salsa Soul Food and YouTube at Angela Spignese. It's produced by me, Mark Damon. I edit and mix the podcast and also wrote the theme songs. You can find us on most popular podcast services like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google. If you like what you hear, please leave a review as it helps people find us. Got a question for Angela? You can write to salsasoulfood at gmail.com and your question could be featured on a future episode.